Hi, I'm Larry Castle here with Ken Brown for episode 79 of That's a Good Question. What is evangelicalism? objectives of our podcast is to help Bible-believing Christians better understand our place, their place in the world. Yeah. And uh, it's constantly changing. There, there uh, is therefore a challenge constantly to know how we should interact with the culture around us, with the world. Yeah. And that's why from time to time we'll discuss cultural issues, political issues, and try to show how biblical teaching relates to what's going on around us. Right. That, that is really the point of, of the teaching. So on this podcast, we often discuss how a biblical worldview should influence us, you know, how it should influence the way we think about culture or a specific cultural issue. But as we think about our relationship to the culture, it's also important for us to think about how the culture views us. And uh, many people in our society have very little understanding of what would motivate people to read a holy book like the Bible or Mm -hmm. to attend and serve regularly in a church or be motivated to speak out regarding and vote consistently with uh, their convictions about what the Bible says. Uh, so, you know, for example, things like the sanctity of right. life are, it may just baffle uh, yeah. our neighbors, people around us, right. uh, why we think and believe and vote the way we do. Mm-hmm. So as fewer people are attached to churches or grow up in homes that have at least somewhat of a Christian worldview, we become more foreign to our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. We should be different. But if they read, listen, watch much of anything then there's at least one thing that they know about those of us who take our biblical beliefs seriously. They know that we're called evangelicals. (laughs) And so that's the topic for today. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a word that's used by the media and on a popular level whenever people are discussing the behavior of religiously conservative people like us. So many, many books and articles have been written for decades that talk about evangelicals, but they seldom provide background Hmm. Uh, about what evangelicalism is. Mm-hmm. It's just this broad term that's used to refer to polit- or to religious conservatives. Right. Uh, so, And unfortunately, uh, it's used oftentimes as a pejorative term, mm. uh, especially in the last five years since the political alignments for most of those of us who are religious conservatives have surprised people yeah. from, you know, from outside of our camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they may not know much about us, but they knew that we claimed, for example, to hold a high view of sexual propriety. Right. But then you have things like the, you know, the escapades of Jerry Falwell Jr. or all of this that's come out about Ravi Zacharias, right. and these things get swept under the rug. Yeah. And there's overwhelming uh, support from our, our uh, evangelicalism for a political candidate who brags about inappropriately grabbing women, saying things like, he never has to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Um, he pays hush money to a porn star, mm-hmm. and he's on his third wife. It, you know, uh, the little that people thought they knew of evangelicals is now called into question. Yep. And evangelicals uh, like us get called many things as a result. (laughs) So (laughs) not just the term evangelical to worry about. (laughs) Uh, So for today's episode, we thought we would provide some definition and context to what it means to be evangelical. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a history to the movement 
And that's helpful to know since, again, this is the way most people see us. This mm-hmm. is the way they refer to us, um, this banner of evangelicalism. So why don't you start off by giving some background mm-hmm. to what became the evangelical movement in America? Well, one place to start is with a, a definition of evangelical. Mm-hmm. Uh, evangelicals are known, or at least have been in the not-too-distant past, for their zeal in pursuing the spread of the gospel. And in fact, the very word evangelical is derived from a Greek noun. The New Testament was written in Greek, many of our viewers know, and uh, euangelion is translated in the New Testament as gospel. And so evangelical, evangelism, evangelist, all of that comes from this euangelion, uh, you being the prefix for happy or good, like a eulogy or a Mm -hmm. euphemism. And then Angel, a uh, messenger, ain't like angel. So euangelion, it's a message and it's a good message. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so the gospel, the, the good news. So one theological dictionary defines evangelical simply as one who believes and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, implicit in that is the belief in the need for conversion, being born again through the gospel of Christ. And that then differentiates evangelicals from the many so-called mainline denominations, for which personal conversion is is downplayed if it's spoken of at all. Mm. People in many mainline that have become liberal, as we will see in a little bit, uh, denominations, could spend their entire life in church and not ever be called to be born again, to, to have a conversion experience. In those churches, one is often born into the religion. Mm-hmm. baptized early on and nurtured into Christianity, as opposed to a conversion experience at some point when one can voluntarily profess faith after hearing the gospel. So evangelicalism, evangelical is a term that's quite generic to believe and proclaim the gospel. But in its popular usage, it refers to those who understand the Bible to teach that people must be individually born again. To use the language of the famous evangelical evangelist, Billy Graham, you trust Christ as your personal Mm. Savior. You personally do this. It's not something that's done for you. It's not something that's done by virtue of being attached to a church or something like that. And so as such, evangelicals are Protestant, religiously conservative people who believe the Bible, and especially what the Bible teaches about Christ, and the gospel and salvation. Yeah, that, that just sounds like what the Bible teaches being a Christian means mm-hmm. and what Christians should care most about. Yeah. Uh, but we have this term then evangelical rather than just Christian to describe it. Um, so that must mean that some things developed historically to yeah, differentiate right. between someone that would be called an evangelical and then mm-hmm. just someone who says, I'm a Christian or I'm a part of a Christian yeah, church. Exactly, that's right. In America in the late 19th century, so I think this will be some interesting history. I hope so, so stay with us. Don't uh, tune out because, oh, no, he's going back into history. Everybody loves history, right? <laughs> Doesn't course, everybody love history? Does, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but in America in the late 19th century, that I remind you is the late 1800s, there were challenges to these basic biblical beliefs that prompted those who believe Scripture and who believe the gospel to more tightly define who they are, as opposed to those more that were just more generically Christian. And one extremely important development and a challenge for Bible-believing people came 
at the latter part of the 19th century with the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. That was in 1859. And the theory of evolution seemed to have irrefutable science on its side, which caused a rethinking of the early chapters of Genesis. And whether it really taught, as Christians had believed for centuries, that God made the world in six literal days. Yeah, that, that uh, let me jump in there. Oops, yeah. hit the wrong button. <laughs> uh, let's make sure our listeners understand why we take the account of biblical creation so yeah. seriously, uh, why we're convinced that evolution does not explain the origin of humanity. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, one key factor is that you know, it uses in the creation account evening and morning yeah. each time to delineate each day. Right. And then the days are numbered, first day, second day. And those two things together are never used in the Bible unless it refers mm-hmm. to an actual 24-hour day. So just want to make sure folks know that um, there's contextual biblical reasons to reject an evolutionary interpretation of Scripture. Right. And in fact, it seems impossible to arrive at such an interpretation if we allow Scripture to speak as written. Yeah, so we exactly. look at what God has said first, and then we try to uh, look at evidence that we may encounter in light of that. Yeah, not the other way around. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And in addition to those good reasons that uh, you gave, there's also the fact that in God giving the Ten Commandments in Acts chapter 20, well, most of our listeners know that one of those Ten Commandments is with uh, regard to remembering the Sabbath day to, to keep it holy. And in explaining why God commanded that, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, uh, it says that it's because in six days God created the earth and everything in it. So, interestingly, it's comparing the days of creation to the Sabbath day. So if you know how long the Sabbath day is, (laughs) you can know how long the days of creation were. Now, you know, if they were just this indeterminate amount of time, which is what many say, Mm -hmm. rather than six literal 24-hour days, if it's this indeterminate amount of time, well, then likewise, the Sabbath day would be an indeterminate amount of time, which would be kind of nice to just be have... Uh, carte blanche to rest all the time <laughs> for yeah. an indeterminate period. Yeah, but it was a day, it and has, those are days. Has always puzzled me. Uh, a lot of times, I'll hear folks say things like, um, and this is getting a little bit off track, but um, say things like, "Well, you know, at the beginning, he's you're, the text is talking about days, and there wasn't even a, a sun yet. Mm. So, you know, how can this be a solar day? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet." Uh, you know, here they're taking what apparently, I mean, just looking at it, the face value of Scripture, mm-hmm. it's what it says. And so, you know, if you're, if you're concerned about taking the, the most obvious interpretation, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it just seems clear to me that it's yeah. what the text says, yeah, right? exactly. And then, of course, there's the, the what Bible believers then say about that mm-hmm. is God had a temporary light source, and there's mm-hmm. you know there's an explanation for yeah. for that. Well, uh, and it could be even simpler than that. I mean, God knew what a day was going to be as He had it planned yeah. out, yeah. <laughs> and the people He was writing to, that's all they knew were mm-hmm. solar days. And yeah. so when He said day, that's what they would have that's understood. What they're think of. Yeah. So yeah. evening and morning, and all, like like you said. So you know, Darwin writes Origin of Species. It's published in 1859. And science was in the ascendancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as is, unfortunately, often the case, when people think science has spoken, then it's just so much worse for the Bible if there appears to be a a contradiction, Mm -hmm. and the Bible's just going to have to be made to to fit. Now, remember, uh, everyone, that this was before the days of formal creation science 
groups. Mm -hmm. So all of the scientific community, for the most part, was saying something contrary to what the Bible teaches. So now if you're a Bible believer, you're really going to have to stand up to the ridicule and all of that, that that went with it. And then add to that the import of what's called higher criticism of the Bible, mm -hmm. coming into seminaries from Germany, and the so-called JEDP documentary hypothesis, it's called. You don't have to worry about memorizing any of that. But the JEDP You were thing, in the youth group when I was still leading, uh, you know what this uh, is. We did a whole right. series on these, so this these is, things. Yeah. This is testing your knowledge, you know, and your memory. <laughs> but yeah, JEDP wrote it really quickly. The idea was that Moses could not have written the first five books of the uh, Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but rather those were written, and we can tell by the wording uh, and doing this criticism, taking a critical look, doesn't mean a negative look, but just evaluating is the idea, judging based upon the documents themselves, rather than what is claimed in the Bible for who wrote it. Mm -hmm. And so based upon that, in those five books, you see some differences of style, you see some differences of words that are used. And so there had to be at least four different authors. The J, that's the J-E-D-P-J, and that would be the Jehovah writer or the Yahweh writer, yeah. because he's using the name of God of Yahweh, as you, mm -hmm. as you say, or in English, anglicized Jehovah. There are other sections that use primarily for the name of God, Elohim. So you've got the D writer, excuse me, the E writer. And then there's the Deuteronomist, who would have written the fifth of those books, Deuteronomy. And then the priestly writer, that's the P, mm -hmm. that wrote all the details about um, in Leviticus and the Levitical priesthood and all of that. Uh, so there was that, that mm -hmm. those who believe the Bible had to contend with. Evolution, you've got the documentary hypothesis, JEDP. And then there was an optimistic view of the future, post-millennialism, mm -hmm. and, and the idea that Christianity and the church need to reform more than regenerate, an emphasis on reformation of society mm -hmm. rather than the regeneration of individuals. And therefore, the social gospel came into vogue. And many Bible believers who know this history have seen how the social gospel went, and the organizations that really bought into that became really focused on more social than on gospel. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, many want to avoid that altogether and therefore don't get involved in social activity at all. Mm -hmm. So those who believe the Bible were alarmed for a lot of reasons. You know, around the turn then of the century from the um, 18th to the from the 19th to the 20th century. They were alarmed that educational institutions that had once believed Scripture were now reinterpreting it to remove things like the miraculous. Hmm. Virgin conception, nah, resurrection, no, creation, as we've talked about, uh, this idea of being born again. So you have institutions, for example, Princeton and Princeton Seminary, a Presbyterian institution, mm. the uh, United, uh, the Presbyterian Church uh, USA, uh, PCUSA, and it became over time what's called modernist or liberal with regard to all of these issues that I'm talking about. They would have faculty that were teaching one or more of these er eras, uh, errors. Uh, there was a, a call then at the turn of the century, the early 1900s, to get back to the basics. Mm. Get back to the fundamentals. Mm. 
And so many of our listeners then will say, okay, I know where we're going with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who adhered to those fundamentals, those basics, were called fundamentalists. So they're rejecting the documentary hypothesis and the higher criticism. Unfortunately, in some cases, some were virtually then rejecting academics altogether mm-hmm. because they saw how it could corrupt an understanding sort of, throwing of, out the of baby, which throw with out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. And then evolution, you know, there's the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial, 1925, down in Tennessee, and Bible believers are made to look like backwoods ignoramuses, really, mm-hmm. uh, in the newspapers around the country. A lot of good marketing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was not as bad as it was made out to be, but Mm -hmm. a movie was made, a a play, a book, Inherit the Wind, a play, and then a movie, Mm -hmm. uh, and we looked really really bad. So you've got fundamentalists saying, okay, enough of all of that. Uh, Let's start our own schools. And those schools were often just uh, nothing more than institutes, but it was some way to educate clergy outside of what were increasingly liberal institutions. Some were more scholarly than others. One, I think, fine example of this is uh, some faculty left Princeton uh, in the late 20s, I think it was 1929, don't hold me, within a few years of that, if it wasn't 1929, to found in Philadelphia, Westminster Theological mm-hmm. Seminary. Mm-hmm. And those five guys were just first-rate scholars, but they also believed the Bible. They couldn't handle the deviations of Christian truth that were happening at Princeton. They left, they uh, left having then put their retirements on the line, in some cases leaving uh, whole libraries mm-hmm. that were owned by the by the wow. institution, but they really uh, took a stand. Uh, others were started by strong personalities and sometimes flamboyant and incendiary kind of personalities. And this has marked fundamentalism and evangelicalism broadly, but fundamentalism in particular, over the decades that I've read about it and have experienced it personally. And that is the strong, flamboyant, incendiary kinds of personalities. Yeah, I Do you know I, what I'm talking about. I was a uh, biblical studies major in, in <clears throat> undergrad and uh, had a class, I forget if it was Baptist history or another class that went through this in great detail. The, the professor of this r- literally wrote the book on this, one of the one of the books that's often used. And um, some of the stuff as we went through it, just I was in disbelief. I it's was amazing. like, "What? Amazing! I know <laughs> they what? They, I know. This guy did what? I think uh, you're going to mention one uh, that <laughs> did some crazy well, stuff." You're thinking of J. Frank Norris, yeah? Didn't and the guy. Oh, oh, the crazy stuff is one. This is the less crazy than what you're thinking about. <laughs> okay. But it was crazy enough that this guy was so uh, flamboyant and was so charismatic in his personality that he could attract crowds and and give the gospel to great numbers of people, and many, many, many people were converted, which is great. But this guy was pastoring churches in Fort Worth, Texas, and Detroit, Michigan at the same time. And this wow. is back in the days, and he would take the train back and forth. One church, multiple <laughs> locations. <laughs> this was way before it was cool, you know? Yeah. And so he's a trailblazer. And now, most of the time he was in Fort Worth, and then he had his ass- assistant take care of things in Detroit, but he would just go back and forth, and he was the, considered the pastor of both of these huge churches. I never really thought about it. In fact, that, that's not the thing I remember about no, him, obviously, right. but I never thought about that. So he's got a campus pastor uh-huh. in the early 1900s. Oh, no, no. Wow. I know. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, but what you're thinking of is this infamous uh, situation where he had gone after, uh, it was a city official, it might have been the mayor, I don't remember exactly, but the city, and, and it was, and ba- this is the days where well-known pastors had their sermons printed in the newspaper. Hmm. So the sermons were news, because everybody went to church, the pastor was a big deal, and especially if you had a big church like J. Frank Norris did. And so his sermon is published, and this, uh, this city official reads it, and he had gone after this guy for something. And the guy's last name was Chips. And he, he shows up at Norris's office to confront him. And Chips ends up being shot. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to laugh, but it's, it's just... The whole thing's really shady. Yeah. You can't make this stuff up, yeah. you know. But Norris ends up shooting him. He's acquitted because he was able to convince the jury that it was a matter of self-defense. This guy was so heated. It's very shady, though. <laughs> so J. J. Frank Norris, guys like that characterized for many people what fundamentalism was. You had a guy named Carl McIntyre who, Norris was a Baptist. Uh, Carl McIntyre was a Presbyterian version of this, but also a very fiery guy, had a Mm -hmm. radio program. At one time, the most popular radio program in the country in terms of numbers of stations. He had like six or 700 stations around the country. Uh, But he got in trouble with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, they started getting him off of stations. He actually he actually bought a ship and then went offshore. His church was in New Jersey. He went offshore so that he would be outside the jurisdiction of the FCC, and he's broadcasting out there. He tried to do that for a while. Flamboyant, that's what, that's what I mean. And there were lots of guys like that. Just as a quick aside, why? Why would fundamentalism be characterized with guys like that so much? And unfortunately, those are the guys then that are the face of something that really is a doctrinal movement Mm -hmm. that is about some very important things. Mm -hmm. But those are the guys who represent it a lot of times for Mm -hmm. people. But part of the reason is, is because it's it's not highly, think about it, you're coming out of the mainline denominations. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to go and start over. You kind of start from the ground up. Mm And that's what a lot of these guys had to do. And so it stands to reason that these were going to be these highly motivated, highly charismatic people who could draw crowds and build things. But unfortunately, that's the kind of personality that often goes with that. I I always think of a story, and again, I'm taking us a little (laughs) off track here, but I always think of a story. I heard this at school um, about how things like that would, you know, it's true. You've got this person who is a charismatic leader, a unique personality to, to mm-hmm. spearhead this mm-hmm. infant movement. Um, but I would hear things about, like, for example, Bob Jones Sr., that he would have these mannerisms, uh, like something he would put his hand over his mouth and lean over the pulpit when he was really making a strong point. And so the, the preacher boys yeah, at the university that. would mimic that. Yeah. And the, the fact is he did that because he didn't want his top teeth to fly out, <laughs> apparently. But, <he> <laughs> but people thought that it. was what the man that of God does. Yeah. When they <laughs> right, right. And that's how central they were yeah. to people's lives. Yeah, that guys thought they needed to mimic their style even. Now contrast all of that with a guy named uh, Jay Gresham Machen. He was one of the faculty from Princeton who went and founded Westminster. Uh, Machen was a very scholarly guy, a mild-mannered guy, but a guy who would go at it with liberals and to defend the Bible. And he's ministering at the time in the 20s and into the 30s 
that a guy named H.L. Mencken, Mencken was a journalist, an atheist, couldn't stand Christians. <laughs> and, and he skewered, Mencken especially, writing for the Baltimore Evening Sun during the Scopes Monkey Trial. He was just skewering uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was representing the fundamentalists down in Dayton, Tennessee, and just really made our people look very, very bad. But all the while, though he had never met Machen, he admired him. And when Machen died, here's, here's what I wrote on our Church Matters blog. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was last year. But here's what I wrote about that. When Machen died in 1937, Mencken surprised the nation by writing an obituary that celebrated the life of a man whose beliefs he thoroughly rejected. And he used the opportunity to call out the hypocrisy of Machen's liberal opponents. He had followed Machen's ministry from afar. The two of them had never met, and he found him to be thoroughly consistent in his convictions. While Machen's opponents were, and this is Mencken's words, disingenuous, and they were, quote, trying to whittle away Christianity's essential postulates. The liberals, he said, quote, endeavored fatuously to get rid of all the inescapable implications of their position. On the one hand, they sought to retain membership in the fellowship of the faithful. But on the other hand, they presumed to repeal and reenact with amendments the body of doctrine on which that fellowship rested. Mm. In particular, they essayed, they wrote, to overhaul the scriptural authority which lay at the bottom of the whole matter, retaining what coincided with their private notions, rejecting whatever upset them. Wow. But then he says of Machen, he was actually a man of great learning and what is more of sharp intelligence. What caused him to quit the Princeton Theological Seminary and found a seminary of his own was his complete inability as a theologian to square the disingenuous evasions of liberalism with the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. He saw clearly that the only effects that could follow diluting and polluting Christianity in the liberal manner would be its complete abandonment and ruin. Either it was true or it was not true. If, as he believed, it was true, then there could be no compromise with persons who sought to whittle away its essential postulates, however respectable their motives. Thus he fell out with the reformers who have been trying in late years to convert the Presbyterian church into a kind of literary and social club <laughs> devoted vaguely to good works. Wow. Okay, that's <laughs> him. nailed it. <laughs> he did, indeed. But it shows that, you know, a person can be all about their convictions like Machen was and still have. You don't have to go out of your way to be incendiary, as I, as I mm. said before. So uh, he wrote a book, by the way, Machen did, in I think it was 1923. That Here's the great title of his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Mm. Now, I say it's a great title because what he's doing is he's saying these are two different religions. Mm -hmm. There's Christianity and there's liberalism, and they're not the same. Mm -hmm. And Mencken recognized that he had the better of the, the argument. Yeah. So fundamentalists started organizations that then rejected the social gospel, rejected evolution, rejected higher criticism, focused on the gospel and the need to be born again. Great. So that is the, the origin then of what we know as fundamentalism, mm -hmm. as a movement. Um, but where does then evangelicalism okay. come in? So by the 40s, as you move forward in time, some fundamentalists were embarrassed by their fellow Bible believers, and they broke with them to start new schools and institutions to be different and better. 
uh, at least in their minds, from those of the fundamentalists. So in 1942, you have the founding of something called the National Association of Evangelicals. And evangelicals then now are those who believe the Bible and the gospel, but they want to provide a better presentation to the culture Hmm. than fundamentalists had been doing for the last several decades. One leading figure was a guy named Carl Henry. He wrote a book in 1947, so you see all this activity happening in the 40s, called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And in it, he critiqued fundamentalists for a number of things. One is uh, a a lack of unity. Mm -hmm. And so the National Association of Evangelicals, for example, declined to merge with Carl McIntyre, the guy I mentioned earlier, he had started his own thing called the American Council of Christian Churches. But they said, you know what, we don't want anything to do with McIntyre, he's too divisive, you know, we want to emphasize unity. He also criticized, they criticized fundamentalists, um, excuse me, uh, Henry did in his book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, critiqued for fundamentalists for their lack of social concern. And also for a lack of scholarship and intellectualism. So the same year that he writes that book, 1947, there's the founding of the flagship evangelical school out in California, a Fuller Theological Seminary. Mm. Um, And it was partly as a reaction to fundamentalists who, in their minds, simply were not up to par intellectually. And then there was one other very important thing that I'll mention in a bit. That, uh, you know, as I listen to you describe that, it occurs to me that this is, you know, this is, this is, seems as relevant today it as it was back it then, it you know, these, these cycles, right? <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they uh, seem very familiar. So that, uh-huh. that sounds good in many ways and reasonable and necessary on the one hand. So if fundamentalists were ignoring academics in some ways and interaction with the culture too, but we have to recognize that there are dangers yeah. to be aware of because when Christians set out to impress the world, it often, exactly. as we see from history, does not go well. And up to the present, right? Yeah. And indeed, yeah, that's the case. It was not long before Fuller Seminary started having faculty who, uh, who had began to remove themselves from belief and inspiration of the Bible mm. uh, because it's not academically fashionable. I mean, all this is happening in the 40s, right? Mm-hmm. 1942, National Association of Evangelicals. 1947, Henry uh, publishes a book on the uneasy conscience of fundamentals. 1947, founding of Fuller Seminary. 1956, so this is just a few years later, not very long at all, the editorial board of an evangelical magazine called Christian Life, they wrote an article. Here's the title of the article. You can, you can Google it. Is Evangelical Theology Changing? Wow, really? That fast? <laughs> and it listed several areas that were already being questioned in 19... 19- one was uh, or, or questioned or, or changing. One was a friendly attitude towards science. Well, go figure, mm-hmm. right? So eh, the six-day creation thing, maybe, maybe not. 1941, um, evangelicals established something called the American Scientific Affiliation for that more friendly attitude towards science. Another thing that was changing was a willingness to re-examine beliefs concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, initially, this was thoroughly a non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal movement. Now Pentecostals are evangelicals in in good standing because we're now becoming minimalists. Mm -hmm. The the minimal thing is, do we believe the gospel? I mean, that's the idea. And then these other doctrines, ah, you know, they're not so important. A more tolerant attitude toward different views of 
eschatology, that is the Bible's teaching on the end times. And related to that was a shift away. This is all in this article, this Christian Life article, 1956, from so-called extreme dispensationalism. Hmm. Now, those are related, the, the views on eschatology, the dispensationalism. I'll talk about it in a minute. They said there's now an increased emphasis on scholarship, more emphasis on social responsibility. That's related to the eschatology and the dispensationalism, as we'll see either at the end here or maybe... We'll continue it in the next week. But notice this, already, 1956, a reopening of the subject of biblical inspiration, hmm. the origin of the Bible, and did God really is God really the ultimate source of the Bible, and a growing willing, willingness, this is the last one, to converse with liberal theologians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned that in addition to Henry's items hmm. in his Uneasy Conscience book, uh, unity, social concern, and scholarship. There was one more. What was that? Yeah, evangelism, and in particular, the evangelism of a guy named Billy Graham. Because huh. Billy Graham had started these huge evangelistic crusades. And from 1949 to 1957, again, see all this is in the 40s and the 50s, mm -hmm. came to a head when he had his New York crusade in 1957. And according to one author, it finally made the two camps irreconcilable, fundamentalists and evangelicals, uh, because of Graham's policies on sponsorship and referrals for converts. Now, what that means, the sponsorship idea, is Graham determined that whenever I go into a city, I'm going to make no evaluation, no judgments about the churches that cooperate with me. Mm -hmm. So I don't care what denomination, I don't care what they believe. Uh, they clearly, in his mind, believe the gospel. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to cooperate in his, his crusade. Well, the deal with that is you had non-evangelicals doing that. You have Roman Catholics doing that. Yeah. You know, well, there's a different gospel going on there in terms of what is justification. And yet he had on his board, and he made that his official policy for decades, mm -hmm. And when it came to when people walked the aisle, which was, of course, you know, walk the aisle just as I am, mm -hmm. and then they would have people that for weeks and weeks they had trained prior to the crusade itself coming to town to deal with people when they came forward, to show them in the Bible how they could trust Christ as Savior, which let me just say here, with showing that these problems, frankly, with Graham's methodology, many, 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 many people came to Jesus through that. And so I thank God for that, and we always must. You know, Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 1 that, you know, people preach for lots of different motives and all of that, but thank God that Christ is preached. And many people came to the Lord. You know, Charles Colson came to the Lord through Billy Graham, and this was a guy who went to jail because of Watergate mm -hmm. and then became a Christian and, you know, wrote a lot, wrote a lot of books and uh, that were helpful even to, to people like me as well. But... They trained those people to show people how to come to Jesus, but then also to say, do you have a church? And if the person says, yeah, I'm, a, you know, I grew up Catholic. Okay, then go back, you know, that was it. You go back to your church. So in terms of discipleship, there's no follow-up. And in fact, people are sent back into sometimes and even often churches that are not going to be helpful to them in, mm -hmm. in that regard. So, one author said, Graham brought an end to evangelical unity. Yeah, so we, we need to be careful as a church that, uh, you know, where, where we're aligning ourselves uh -huh. with. So as leaders of a church, we have to steer the ship carefully to avoid these kind of problems. You know, as we look at history, it's pretty easy to see then 
the, the problems that that could cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, we've had lots of discussions about these things over the years, and, and you've had the primary responsibility to ensure that our leadership team is informed and that we establish the right kinds of policies right. and practices right. so that we're biblically faithful and uh, historically informed. Right. Well, it's a great blessing for me to have a group of men, including yourself, uh, with whom to serve, who understand the seriousness of these issues, and they see where things can go when you want to impress the culture too much, mm-hmm. whether academically or socially, or even mold the culture to our liking with, say, political power, mm-hmm. you know, which is something that we're experiencing now. All of the above, actually, we're experiencing yeah. now. So the best and most discerning way is to take, I think, the best of fundamentalism, Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of good to take, an uncompromising approach to truth and to the Bible and to the, the gospel, but also understand our position in the culture that we're called to reach. We don't mm-hmm. have to be uh, we don't have to be separate from our culture, but rather engaged in our culture, but not allow that tail to wag the dog, mm-hmm. which is what ended up happening with things like the social gospel. And that's where then, back to, I said there's a connection between the eschatology, the dispensationalism, the social involvement. You know, if you have some eschatological view that has the kingdom in some way now, which dispensationalists generally, or certainly at that time did not, generally do not. But if you have some view that the kingdom in some way is now, then it follows that you are going to see the need for the church to be involved in establishing the conditions of, consistent with the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what the Bible says about the kingdom, it has the so, it's a social transformation. It's okay. Yeah. So you end up involved in these social works, not just as a good idea to enhance your reputation as people who love their neighbors and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, I'm actually in favor of yeah, that. Yeah, as, as, a, as a tool in getting the good news out, it gives credibility to your message. Rather reaches, than that, yeah. which is a good thing, right. it actually becomes, pro, it becomes a mandate. Mm-hmm. It's actually our mission to do this. Cultural transformation. And, and, yeah. and so that's where that becomes an issue, and those of us who are leaders have to be aware mm-hmm. of that that these views now, if they are played out consistently, and that's one of the reasons then you have today within evangelicalism a very large push for social action. Uh, Let's continue, okay, going forward. But let me just say as we end that I am, and I know you are as we've talked about it, but I'm very much in favor of mercy ministry to Mm -hmm. do what you just said, to be consistent with our gospel message, to show that we love people, to enhance our credibility with those that we're seeking to reach, but not as this is what the church was founded to do mm-hmm. as part of it. No, what the church was founded to do was carry out the Great Commission. And in carrying out the Great Commission, there are things that we do to to, to give credibility to the mm-hmm. messengers mm-hmm. Uh, as we go about doing that. You know, Mercy Ministries is a great way to do that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as you said, this is a a broad topic. There's more to cover. So we'll end here for this week, but we'll plan to take this uh, topic up again and and continue it probably next week. Uh, We thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, I remind you, as I try to regularly, if you don't already, subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell so that uh, you get a notification when new episodes come out. 
And I'll also encourage you this week, I don't normally do this, but share this episode. If, mm. uh, if you benefit from this, if you know somebody who would benefit from this, just copy the link, whether in YouTube or on our church website, send that off, share it on Facebook. We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you helping us get this into the hands of people who can benefit from it. So thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.